0: Well, good morning. My name is Paul. Oh, good. That's great. you really warmed them up, haven't you guys? And uh, <laughs> um, if you've been around the last few weeks, my apologies is if you haven't. I really encourage you to, um, if you ever have to miss a talk, to listen to the talk. We have it on YouTube. But now I just started a few weeks ago just beginning just to share this thing that you felt like God has spoken to us as a church to kind of step into seeing that we are calling multiply. And I haven't got time to kind of articulate that in a great way that he did. Then last week, he began just to talk about this idea. One of the things that we feel God is inviting us into is just to kind of multiply and kind of grow. There's no hope I've got to do it. Um, in kind of building kind of resilience. And Nigel did a great job of kind of saying that we're going to step into this and we're using this uh, book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians. And he looked at the, the first chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, And it talks about God being the God of all comfort. And if you haven't listened to that, I'd really encourage you to uh, listen to that. But today I'm just going to build upon that idea of kind of multiplying and kind of growing in kind of resilience. This idea that we need to grow in this ability to deal with kind of pressures and situations that are happening in and around us. And I'm going to be looking at chapter 3. So if you have a verse, I'm going to be looking at, um, sorry, verse, Bible, I'm going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so I'm just going to read this, and this is from the NIV. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Your yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but of tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, would not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with a surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, have been transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I feel like I should do what the Anglicans say. Blessed be the word of the Lord. And uh, this passage is just packed full of just so many good things. And I don't have time to kind of articulate and unpack it all. But I'd encourage you as we kind of go through this book in the next few months to kind of maybe be reading it in your kind of private time and delving into different bits. Because I'm going to be focusing on certain themes, a certain. verses in the passage. And one of the things that Paul is doing when he's writing this letter to the Corinthians is he's kind of giving them images or giving them words to remind them of who they are or what they have in Christ and who they can become in him. So he kind of just starts off by kind of saying these Corinthians, these people that live in this um, city called Corinth, That they're kind of like his letters or recommendations. They're the proof of the gospel that he has been proclaiming. That what he has been sharing is kind of being imprinted and affecting their lives. And then Paul kind of wants to remind them of what they have. Because like so many of us, we sometimes forget what we actually have. We don't realize the value of something that we do have. Do you know the value of what you have? And you might be wondering, why did I put up that vase? I asked my son Daniel, he loves antiques. I knew there'd be some stories around somewhere. This vase was going to be given away in a house clearance. And um, they're like, okay, person to die, let's just clear the house out. We've got everything got worth already. Well, what they didn't realize was that vase, this was a few years ago, is from the 18th century King Yong dynasty. It sold for 43 million pounds. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason I like that story and the reason I link that into what Paul is sharing is that people obviously didn't realise what they had and Paul's like I want to remind you guys of what you had and he begins to do these contrasts in the first few verses of 2 Corinthians he talks about kind of being written on kind of ink in those days ink wasn't permanent it was kind of like carbon and gum and you could easily kind of remove it and he says you had that but now you've got something that's written on stone that cannot be removed. That is permanent. That's been written by God. Something that's been written on your heart. So there was a fulfillment of prophecies that were mentioned years and years ago where in books like Ezekiel in particular, where God said, you know, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to come and write the word of God, the reality of who I am upon your heart. Then he begins to do this kind of contrast between what they call the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant kind of based on kind of rules and kind of regulations. The New Covenant based on a place of relationship and uh, intimacy. It has this kind of contrast between kind of death and light, life. A glory and a greater glory. And he begins to do all these contrasts. And Paul is kind of saying to the Corinthian church, do you not realize what you have? And I think it's important that we remind ourselves of what we have, the good news that we have of Jesus, the good news that we've been singing about. So many of those different songs, I just have truths that we have. Now, what's this got to do with kind of uh, resilience? Because I think often in times of hardship and difficulty, we focus in on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And so one of the things that Paul is kind of saying to the church in Corinth is, we need to remind ourselves of what we have. It's one of the reasons that occasionally in church we kind of just celebrate communion when we just pause and remember. Remember what we do have. And I don't know about you, I often have to do this, particularly communion is one of these things that I enjoy celebrating, but I also find quite hard. The reason is I've been celebrating communion for decades. And it's very easy for me just to kind of take it for granted. I know the importance of it, theologically, maybe I'm may just being very vulnerable, but I just need to enter in again. It's like, wow, I have more than just kind of like a vase. I have the power of God for the salvation, for the transformation of me, body, mind, and spirit to bring change to our communities. Do we know what we have? And I could spend the whole talk just, um, just talking about what we have. But I want to just make a shift and focus on something else that we need when it comes to being a church that kind of grows in resilience. And from there, I'm going to jump right to the end of this chapter. This kind of passage again. And we all who have unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory I've been transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What a verse. I'm just gonna pray again. So I come to this verse. Father, just help me as I look at this verse in particular this morning. Help me articulate things which is hard to explain, Lord. Who can Talk about your glory and who you are, God. You're indescribable. But in some simple way, God, help me to point our hearts, individuals as a church, towards this way of life. So this idea as we're contemplating on God, we are transformed, that we become like him. Some translations say say that we are changed into kind of his likeness. And the reason why this verse, again, I was speaking to my wife Katie and she was like, what's this got to do with kind of resilience is because I think a lot of aspects to do with resilience is to do with where we fix our eyes. Where do we decide to put our focus on what we are going to contemplate? And as I look at this verse, I thought it would just be useful just to kind of look at some of the key words. So the first one is kind of this idea of kind of contemplating the Lord's glory. What is the Lord's glory? And so there's a few kind of definitions. Actually, this it's only the second paragraph, which is this guy called John Piper. The first paragraph I just borrowed from all over the place. Most people say that trying to describe God's glory is just like really, really hard to describe. It's hard to put it into words, but these are some of the things that people begin to articulate. God's glory is, god's weight his kind of weight glory is often described as weight in wonderful quantities such as might beauty goodness justice and honor you know we were singing about it today about kind of the uh might remind me exactly the words but just about the kind of the weight of his glory breaking chains and uh, and i was thinking about it and i was thinking yeah because the glory of god is heavier than anything else that's why he can break anything. That is this. They have this idea of that. It has this idea of, kind of the characteristics that God has in super uh, abundance. John Piper described the glory of God as the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. I mean, every one of those words is kind of, we don't live in a world where anything is perfect. So trying to describe God, his character and his worth and his attributes. God's glory is the magnificent worth, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. Like I said, it's hard to explain, but that is why we've been invited to kind of look at, gaze upon. Then lastly, God's glory is sometimes just described as his presence. You know, you have this again and again, particularly in in what we call the Old Testament, where the glory of God came and was his manifold presence. So that's the glory of God. So that's one of the key words. One of the other key words is this idea of being kind of transformed. And the word there in Greek, I just, I was told, I didn't look it up. Metamorph, it means to kind of be changed. It's from where we get this word, if you've been a child, kind of metamorphosis. This idea, you know, when you're maybe a youngster and you did this, you kind of got a caterpillar and you fed it, stuffed it. Actually reminds a little book that we used to read with our kids, The Hungry Caterpillar. And uh, you know, and he just stuffs himself. And eventually he gets transformed into a beautiful butterfly. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, as we gaze upon God's glory, we're going to be transformed. And that transformation is going to be total. It's going to be radical. You know, you look at sometimes this beautiful butterfly and you look at the caterpillar, you look at the butterfly, you look at the caterpillar, and it's like, wow, what a transformation. And it's a transformation that can't be regressed. You can't just go, right, let's try to get that butterfly back into a caterpillar and so he's saying we've got to gaze on the glory of God however difficult that is to grasp because we're going to get kind of transformed we are never going to be the same again and that happens through gazing with unveiled faces so that seems to be quite crucial what does that mean and I want to spend some time just thinking about that I was just praying about it and I was thinking how do you explain that idea or gazing, contemplating with unveiled faces. And I just have a couple of illustrations which hopefully maybe help you uh, understand it. When the, kind of the sun comes out and I spend my time in the sun, I begin to go freckly. And, uh, and that's the result of being in the sun. And in some ways, gazing upon God is like putting yourself in the presence of God. And as you do that, you are transformed. You know, you sometimes see this, people go on holiday, and they go, oh, you've been out in the sun. Uh, like me, like, you know, just begin to go freckly. But the key thing is, the only bits of me that are going to get freckly are the bits that I expose to the sun. This going to limit to this little illustration, because as somebody who's had skin cancer, I really take care what I expose my skin to. But you can see it as you expose yourself to it. There's a lovely, one of my passages I love a lot is in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And, and, and there's these disciples of Jesus, they're standing before these people called the Pharisees who weren't that keen on them. And it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. To use the language I've been doing, they could see they'd been sitting out in the sun because they could see it because it affected their lives. When you spend time with God, it begins to affect you. Occasionally, Katie, will be a, um, I'll be away somewhere or upstairs and I'll just spend some time with God and, and I'll come downstairs and Katie will say, you've been with God. I don't know if it's maybe because I'm particularly kind or nice at this moment in time, but it begins to affect you. A countenance begins to change. That's why he talks about this kind of story that's found in the Old Testament about Moses. Moses was a man who kind of entered in this place called the Holy of Holies. This was like the most intimate place you could be. And he literally just shone as he encountered God. It begins to affect you. It changes you. And that's so important. It's important for us because it changes us. It's also important for those who live amongst because our countenance might be the only gospel some people ever get to read. What are we reflecting? What are we mirroring? It changes you. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of um, America's Got Talent. Confession there. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, didn't think Paul would watch that. But um, my kids love America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent. And um, I was reminded of this um, Uh, It's not maybe the right phrase for it, but... And it was a lady called... um, Her kind of singing title, whatever she liked to call herself was kind of Nightbirdie. Don't know if anybody ever saw it. And uh, she sung a song called It's Okay. And it was very beautiful. She got what's called a golden buzzer, which if you don't watch it means you're really, really good. And and they were asking her about her life because there was something that was just kind of radiant about her. And what the song was about... And, uh, and so she says she got ca- you know, cancer, and they said, how is it now? She says, I got cancer pretty much in every part of my body. But you wouldn't be able to tell it from her face. And it didn't surprise me in the days that kind of came out afterwards that she was just somebody that led worship. She was somebody who was pursuing God, because you could see it. Interestingly enough, I saw a production uh, a few months ago where they asked the guy who produces this show, Simon Cole, to kind of go through the thousands of auditions he'd seen which was the kind of top 10 that impacted him. And the number one was this one. You see, when we press into the presence of God, it changes us. We were singing about being loved, and I loved that because I had a a little bit, since when you write a sermon, you have bits and you think, shall I put them in, shall I not put them in? Maybe it's just me. But it was just a thing I read yesterday and it said, it is being loved that beautifies us. It is being loved that beautifies us. If we would but allow that love for our defenses. It's a full quote from a guy called Charles Cleverly. He's a a vicar uh, in Oxford. It's in love that we transform. That's what it means to kind of gaze upon God, to allow ourselves To be changed and so as us as we seek to press into that one of my first questions is what do we need to expose to that love you see like I can keep certain parts of myself away from the sun it's not the perfect illustration but hopefully it helps what do I need to allow God to impact sometimes we have certain areas of our life that he's saying expose it to my goodness to my love and it's going to be changed Another illustration, because I really, in some ways, want to labour the point, because I think it's important, because I don't know about you, I want to be transformed, I want to gaze on the glory of God, is the kind of phrase it uses there, we're unveiled faces. And um, I'm kind of very familiar with that idea of kind of veils, not veils. Those who don't know, I spend most of my time working with Muslims, and particularly a lot of my colleagues work in countries where people are actually, the, the women are veiled. There's a few things about being veiled. Firstly, that idea of being unveiled comes in the place of intimacy. So you might see, think about Afghanistan, maybe that's probably one of the best examples for what they call the full burqa. They wear that the women will wear that when they go out in public. But when they're in their intimate place with their husband, that's when they're unveiled. That's when they're at the most real and the most vulnerable place. It's in that place of vulnerability and intimacy. That we are transformed. The other thing that my uh, friends do, there's actually some of my male colleagues tell me as well, because they tell me one of the easiest this is just a side point, one of the easiest ways they can get around Afghanistan without being stopped is for them to kind of dress like a woman in a full burqa. They say they have to learn how to walk as well. (laughs) That's what they tell me. Just passing it on. And... uh, but what my people tell me is one of the things about wearing a burqa is it's very hard to kind of walk because you have kind of limited kind of vision. You have limited perspective. And I think we are the same when it comes to kind of living with kind of unveiled hearts. God is inviting us to take off the veil, to see more clearly his glory, to see wider. And as we do that, we are going to get changed. Just to give you some examples of that because it's very easy for us to kind of rattle through some of these things about the glory of God his goodness his might his power these attributes but there's way more I remember uh, at the age of 38 where God began to kind of take my veil away and I began to see him as a father now did I know he was God the father yes I do know the kind of the trinity but in some ways, that aspect of my life, I had not entered into the fullness of that. And as I did that, I began to realize that I'm his son, that I am loved. Some of the stuff that had driven me kind of performance-wise, not what do people think about my tour, what do they think about this and that, began to go as I got a fuller revelation of that. Another quick example is I've kind of known it as a child, I read the stories, heard the stories in the Bible that God is our healer, that God is good. But then again, about 10 years ago, God again began to just say, God, Paul, I want to expand your understanding of that. I was at this kind of celebration that happens in the summer. It's called New Wine. And uh, there was a man there, and he was just kind of praying. He was saying, has anybody here got like nuts and bolts in their body because maybe they've broken the back or something, and they put nuts and bolts in it. And so it kind of limited what they did. So he began to pray, and God began to heal people. So people began to touch the toes that in theory could not touch their toes because in theory they got a metal bar in their back. And I was like, whoa, it's not going to mess with my mind. And so this guy particularly was just standing up. He'd been in a motorbike accident and everybody was just kind of celebrating. Well, the next day they were just doing some prayer and this guy was jumping up and down again and I think the guy at the front was like, oh, not him again. He's like, you got to share yesterday about what God did in your back. He goes, no, no, today God took away my scars. And then across that room, people who'd had scars, some of them self-inflicted in times of depression and brokenness were healed. And that just blew my mind. It still just blows my mind, the goodness and the love of God. And I throw those out. You see, I knew about the love of God, but then God goes, God, there's more. There's more. There's a verse in Ephesians kind of, I think it's 3, 318 or 316, and it just talks about kind of the, the width and the depth for God's love. It's an interesting passage because as as we think the, the biggest and the widest we can think and the most amazing thing is what's called 3D. You know, when you go to the cinema, it's like you can have 2D or 3D. It's like 3D is the best. If you read that passage, it talks about 4D. I remember looking it up, and um, scientists tell me there's at least four dimensions. Some people would argue that there's like 5, 6, 7, eight, nine, 10, 11 dimensions. Was that. I was like, wow, there is more to God if we're willing to press into that. And so we got that invitation. So they kind of come in to kind of land. How do we do this? We're going to step into that invitation. I believe that God is asking us a church and he's saying there is more that I want to show you. There is way more that I want to show you. And so there's this verse in Jeremiah 33, verse 3. It says, Call on me and I will answer you and show you deep and unsearchable things that you do not know. Now, I used to think that verse was to do with like, call on me and I will show you deep and unsearchable things you do not know. This is all about the prophetic wisdom for seeing you. And you could maybe interpret it there. But there's nothing more deep and there's nothing more unsearchable than God. And He is inviting us he delights to reveal this aspect to him. Last week, um, somebody just kind of referred to had this phrase, and it stuck in my mind. Lost in wonder, lost in awe. There's actually a song written called Lost in Wonder, Lost in Love. That's what God's inviting us into. What do I mean by that? What does it mean to be lost? I mean, it's amazing how many things we sing, and I think, do we really know what we're singing? When you're lost, it means you're in an unfamiliar place. Something's new, something's different. There's uncertainty, is unfamiliar. And I believe that's what God is inviting us into, to be lost in him. You see, we can get familiar with God about this, what it's like. And there's more. Maybe because I like to push illustrations. I love illustrations. <laughs> it's the way my mind thinks. Maybe it's the way God speaks to me. But we often get talk about getting lost in something. You know, you got lost in a book, got lost in a film or something, got lost in creation. What we mean by that is we're so immersed in something that we become unaware of other stuff. And that's what God is inviting us into. And that's one of the things that is so important in the sense of growing resilience. Because again, when I was sharing this with my wife, she said, what's it got to do with resilience? Because it says, we either get lost in God or we get lost in other stuff. We either get overwhelmed by stuff around us, or we will get overwhelmed by God. God is inviting us into more. Secondly, we need the Holy Spirit to reveal these things. Um, the verse there, one Corinthians two twelve, says, "God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God." Because I can't naturally do that. It's like, Holy Spirit, I need you, reveal. Just like as soon as he kind of like rips the veil, and it's like when I saw scars getting big, he was like, whoa, there's more out there. Thirdly, we have a responsibility to create space and time to focus and gaze. To gaze, well, firstly, it's create space, time, whatever that looks like. And I know some people, I haven't got the time. So this is just a few minutes. I've learned over time, we all focus on something. It's a question of what we focus on. So one of the things I'm practically trying to do is I'm just trying to get off Facebook and trying to get off news. You know, I love the news. It's particularly hard in times like, the, like we we're talking about now, and kind of Turkey, Syria, a lot of my colleagues are working in those parts of the world. And um, it's like, just I don't have to do it all the time. And to gaze. You know, in, gazing implies a deliberate choice. Katie's not here. Maybe I'll pick on my good friend, Mark Hiles. I can just gaze upon him now. It's a choice. <laughs> and you know, Whoever I picked on, was going to not like it. <laughs> I have a good enough relationship with Mark just to do this. But in fact, see, I could look everywhere. And doing that, you know, when you talk, you can kind of look around. But when you gaze, you make a choice. You do a focus. It's deliberate. It's intentional. God is inviting us that into we will intentionally gaze on him kind of where do you, where do you start well one good place to start is the bible it's always a great place to start and um, and god was just speaking to me recently he said to me uh, i have this kind of dialogue it might sound strange and i felt like god would say to me what do you look for when you read the bible and I kind of realise that sometimes I'm just looking for an encouragement, for a principle to obey. And these are all good things. I'm not saying these are bad. But he said, ultimately, the Bible, Paul, is about me. You know, that's why when Jesus was with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says he went through scripture and he showed them where those scriptures pointed to him. He wasn't so interested in the promises and the principles. And so if we're a people that want to grow in gazing upon God, and I really believe as a church as he's inviting us into that, then we need to just um, read the word, read the word of God. It reveals himself to him. Fifthly, he's not the fifth up there. Uh, I got another point, which came to me. I was talking about this with somebody called a spiritual director this week, and she asked me this question. She said, what kind of blinkers do you have? What veil do you have? And I thought, well, that's a good question. I'm normally the one to ask questions. And um, and so as we press into God and saying, we want more of you, God, what are some of the things that we, blockages that we put there? I gave you an example earlier on from Ephesians 3, kind of verse 18, you know, where Paul says, you know, can you grasp? the width, the depth, the length, the height of God. It's like, there's more out there. I was sharing this with Joe earlier this week as I kind of got excited about this talk. I so I can't wait till Sunday to share this with somebody. And, um, you know, often when we talk about encountering God, we talk about maybe feeling him or seeing him. And I was reading a verse from Songs of Solomon when it talks about your name is like perfume. And uh, I thought that's Interesting. And I went for a run that day and I was running, and suddenly I began to smell something. And I kind of stopped. For some of you, this well, might just feel like you're nuts, but maybe just keep listening. And, um, and I couldn't see, there was nobody out there, there was no tree there. I'd just been running and thinking about God. And uh, He said, Yeah, Paul, you can smell me sometimes. I remember speaking to my spiritual director. She kind of helped me because she said, what does the smell sound like? What smell? What what, what was it? Tell me about it. And I was trying to describe it to her. It's kind of like not overwhelming, but it was very, you know, kind of just evident. I said it was kind of intoxicating. It was kind of invigorating. It was life-giving. And as I was just thinking about it, it says his name is like perfume. I just froze that. God's got hundreds of names in the Bible. I wonder if each one of his names has a different smell. Again, it's like, what's he inviting us into? Then I was reminded, and I'll finish here, because for some of you, that's already a massive stretch. There's a well-known verse in the Bible that people often quote, Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see the Lord is good. As I was chatting this through with my spiritual director, I kind of came to this feeling that maybe God is inviting us to pursue him with all our senses. Sometimes when we stand here and we talk about it, you, know, you can just sense God's presence. about smelling it, tasting it? I don't know what it is, but believe that God is inviting us in to more. Lastly, make it a lifestyle of gazing upon God. There's a story I know I've thrown in quite a lot today. It's in Isaiah 6, which is a great example of somebody who thinks he knew God, and then God showed himself in a new way, and he's like, whoa, this is new. And in Isaiah 6, verse 3, it says, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As we talk about living with unveiled faces, gazing upon God, we are invited into our lifestyle because the glory of God is everywhere. If we would have eyes to see it, oh, that God would open our eyes to behold his glory. And in a minute, we're going to have a time of ministry and I don't know, Pete and Joe, if they've got any ideas, but one thing I want to do is just to kind of invite us to gaze upon his glory to focus in on God with unveiled faces. This is important. Because as we go and we talk about what Nigel was talking last week, you know, the seasons that we're in, the seasons that maybe are ahead where we need resilience. We need to be people that learn to put our focus on what we have that God has given us and to bring our focus in on God. Somebody challenged me many years ago. He said, for every focus and gaze you have on an issue, take at least two on God. What he meant by that, as soon as I don't know about you, I have an issue, I have an email going through, and I begin to kind of go, oh, well. you know, as soon as it's big, as soon as it's small. But my attention, and my focus begins to go on that, and it's like I've got to do at least two on God, because if not, I begin to get overwhelmed. Like I said, you either get lost, caught up in God, or you'll get lost or caught up in something else. You will either be overwhelmed by God or you'll be overwhelmed by something else. I think God wants us to be overwhelmed, to be lost in in him. We need it. Our community needs us to take up this invitation to be people who unveiled faces, exposing every area of our life to the love and the goodness of God, are transformed. Get lost afresh in him, transformed and reflect him.